Welcome to Tattooed Freaks and Business Suits, recorded live at the Personal Touch Career Services in Denver, Colorado. I am your host, Donna Shannon. As a professional career coach, I help people navigate the hiring maze to get jobs that they really love. So, it's true. The world of work is changing in the United States, especially as Gen X, Millennials, and those to come after us seek positions of leadership that still allow them to be themselves. So that's really the purpose of our show, is to address some of these evolutions and what that means to you in your own career. And of course, we're going to talk about tattoos. Our sponsor is the Personal Touch Career Services, where you are Denver's top-rated career coaches. So check out our signature 60-day job search program, along with all of our resume writing packages at our ridiculously long website, Personal Touch careerservices.com once again that's personal touch careerservices.com or you know just google it thank you very much for joining me once again with tattooed freaks and business suits i've got a very important announcement we are actually in the middle of a reboot and you are here part of our first new episode with our new direction So if you've listened to us for a while, or if you've checked out some of the older, you know, sessions that we've done, you may be wondering why are we going to be switching things up? Well, I've got a pretty good reason. So since starting my podcast in 2018, I focused on bringing in guests. And that's fine. Don't get me wrong. I love the guests we've had. We've shown amazing coaches and business people giving in great responses and insight into the world of work. But I started to realize something was happening. Just like many people do in the professional world, everything I did was to support or enhance someone else. So what's the truth behind that? Whenever we start supporting others and not our necessarily our own goals, we start limiting our own voice in favor of promoting others. Now, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything like that, but like most of the people in today's modern workspace, I discovered that the best thing for me to share with you is my authentic self. So our purpose of the show is still going to remain the same. I want to discuss the evolution of work, but in this case, I want to talk about it as it relates to your career. Now, as one of the tattooed freaks myself, it's fascinating to me to see how things have changed in the 25 years that I've been in the professional workforce. Yeah, I know. I don't look that old. Uh, And I certainly don't let my age, which is in my early 50s, hold me back from pursuing exactly what I want to do in my career. And after some soul searching for myself over these past six months, what really is my biggest passion? And honestly, it really is helping people achieve their professional dreams. So all along, I've focused on practical tools to do this. That's why we do a lot of resumes, you know, LinkedIn profiles. I do interview coaching, these kind of things. But more importantly, I want people to realize that it's possible to go after those dreams. And I have done so many times in my own career. Obviously, I own my own business. I've been doing that full-time since 2011, so that's well over a decade on that. Previous to that, I was in human resources and recruiting. I did that for about eight years while simultaneously teaching job searching classes. I've been doing that since 2004. But even before that, I was involved in broadcasting because my dream as a kid was I wanted to be on the radio. 
And not just any radio. I wanted to be like a wacky morning DJ, right? Just doing all the crazy bits and playing music and all the rest. That was like my ultimate dream. And um, that didn't happen right away. But I was, in fact, a morning show producer. It's kind of funny and weird how I got there, though. Uh, it's not the typical path you might expect to see. So when I was in high school, I went up to my guidance counselor and I was told him about my wacky morning DJ idea. And he just kind of sat there and he looked at me and he blinked his eyes a few times and he goes, I have no idea how to make that happen. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't remember anything else he might have said at that point. Uh, he probably tried to persuade me to do like a reasonable career. I don't really know. Um, by the way, in case you're wondering, the normal path to get something like that done is you go to college for a communications degree at a school that has like a, you know, their own radio station. And then you volunteer and you do classes and then you go work in small markets and you work your way up. That's like the normal traditional path. Well, I didn't know any of that and I didn't know where to look. So, of course, I did the next best thing. I got pregnant and married. Yes, in that order. I was 17 years old and I was a senior in high school. I did go ahead and finish out my senior year while I was both married and pregnant. Definitely the only kid at graduation with a six month old baby, but you know, that's the way it goes. And then I was going to go to college, um, but things got a little messed up where the state didn't know how to handle an emancipated minor, so they weren't going to give me, like, in-state rates on the tuition. And being easily thwarted, I decided that the world wanted me to be barefoot and pregnant, so that's what I did. And I got pregnant again and uh, stayed home with my kids for five years. I actually have three children now. Um, they are definitely adults <laughs> in their 30s. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I was not June Cleaver of any way, shape, or form, no, uh, considering I became an active alcoholic, that was quite a different thing. My kids are fine. I didn't drink while I was pregnant. It's okay. Don't worry. That's all right. And then, by the time my youngest was turning a one years old, I did find a college in town, the Colorado Institute of Art that had a program which was video production, music business management, and audio engineering. Aha, there's my tie-in to broadcasting. So I went there and it was kind of like rock and roll high school and lots of other things happened personally. I'm not gonna bore you with that stuff, but after graduation, it took about a year after that, I got a job in the mail room part-time at the radio station here in town. It's actually one of the big big conglomerate. So they had eight radio stations that they owned. And, you know, I stuck it in with the business office. I got promoted a few times there, obviously became full time. And then I knew I wanted to still get into the morning show. And this company, they had my top choice radio station of all time, KBPI. It's the heavy metal station here in town, in Denver. And I'm like, how am I going to make this happen? By this time I was divorced. I had three kids that were all in elementary school. And first and foremost, I had to get better on my technical skills because it had been three years since I had been around any professional audio equipment. 
So after I got a salaried position, I actually talked them into letting me do part-time work on the AM stations, running the boards on the overnight weekend shifts. So that way I got more experience and boy, did I suck. I will admit it. I sucked. I wasn't very good. I made a lot of mistakes, but for some reason they didn't fire me. They just kept retraining me. So thank God for that. Uh, and then I also got a lot of help from my ex-in-laws as well as my ex and things like this that kind of made all these crazy dreams possible in the first place. So I'd been on doing the two jobs at the radio station for quite some time, a few months, maybe even up to a year, hard to remember now. And the opening came up. There was the morning show producer for KBPI with my top choice team. I'm like, yes, I'm gonna do this. So I went through the audition, then they, shock of shocks, they hired me. And I found out later that they got teased quite a bit, my team, Carrie and Kearns, because they had an accountant as their producer. But after like, oh, I don't know, a couple of months of me doing that for them, they would actually stand up for me and say, hey, maybe you should all get a producer who's an accountant because we always have our credentials. We know where all of our stuff is. She's extremely organized and, you know, because I came up through the business office. But um, I will be honest, it was difficult doing this as an active alcoholic. And in fact, I had been on the job for a few months and uh, my boyfriend at the time, Mike and I, we lost our apartment. So my kids went to go live with one of my youngest went to live with his dad and my other two kids went to live with my ex-in-laws. And then my alcoholism and honestly, a lot of drugs kind of spun out of control. My morning show fell apart. That wasn't me. That was some of the issues with them. And then, um, yeah, so it was a very demoralizing time in my life because here I am. I sacrificed everything for this job. The job was the only thing I had left. I had no morning show. It was me in the morning sitting alone in the studio. I wasn't allowed to talk on the air. We weren't doing bits. We were just playing music and we pulled in sports news and some other news from our AM station. We the AM station gave us our traffic reports and that was it. Dang. Talk about working so hard to make a career change happen, to get there and find out, is the dream worth the cost? And I'll be honest, I mean, at that point, I was drinking and high all the time because I just couldn't deal with the realities of what I had done. You know, parts of me had that guilt and shame of letting my kids go, but just trying to make things with the job. And then when the job fell apart, I had nothing to hold me grounded. So that lasted for about two months. And honestly, I... Uh, got pretty suicidal in that point. I'll be honest with you, because we're just going to lay things out here. This is me and this is my authentic self. But in January of 1999, they brought my morning show back. It was a little bit different iteration. There was one of the guys, the comic from the former one. They brought in a um, longtime talent 
from years ago who had been with a different part of the show and his wife. And they were both, you know, pros and they knew what they were doing. So we got to kick off the brand new show. I was like, I'm going to be all committed. And then the Broncos were going to the second Super Bowl that they were ultimately won with John Elway as the quarterback for you football nerds out there. And this one was the one in Miami. Don't ask me what number it is. I don't know which Super Bowl, whatever. And my idea for I was going to be like on top of everything. I was just going to be the perfect producer. I was going to get everything up and running. So the way I decided to do that was I was going to do heavy drugs all week long so I could be sure to stay awake and get to work on time. Yeah, not, not a good idea. I do not recommend that one. So we wrapped up the show on Friday morning at 10 a.m. That's when we wrapped. Program director calls me into his office. Shock, I was not fired, but I was banished to the graveyard shift. And once again, not allowed to talk because that is the way to definitely (laughs) punish me. The best way to punish me, don't let Donna talk. And yeah, I'll be honest, that Friday afternoon, January of 1999 was my first suicide attempt of that year. By the time I got sober in October of 1999, I would have a total of five suicide attempts because I couldn't lie to myself anymore. The job that I sacrificed so much for wasn't working out. I messed up there and I didn't have any other tools or ways to deal with anything. So... I get on the the graveyard shift and I continue to misbehave because that's what alcoholics do, especially arrogant ones who think they know everything and better than everybody and can get away with everything. Yeah, not exactly always a brilliant idea, but you know, that's where I was at that point in my life. And everything kind of went along those ways until April of 1999, April 20th. For those of you who don't know, April 20th, 1999 is the day of the Columbine shooting in uh, Colorado. And for our station in particular, it hit us really, really hard. That was our audience. Those kids were our kids. That, you know, that, that was us. Um, When I showed up for my shift that night, the DJ who was on before me, he was like seriously going, I can't believe this. I think I'm going to quit. I can't handle this. Because half the phone calls we were getting from our audience was kids who were upset and torn to pieces and just didn't know how to handle it or deal with it. And then the other half of the calls were all the kids who thought it was the most awesome thing ever. And they wished they had had the courage to go shoot up their schools and things like that. It was not a pleasant time to be with. But what it made me realize was that what I did mattered. And even if it just was spinning, you know, compact discs, playing music overnight, the things I do in this life have an impact on people around me. And it, it really straightened me up professionally. And I recommitted myself to my job. I quit screwing around. I quit changing the playlists. And, you know, I just flew right. So 
by June, they had me back on with the morning show, which was having its own challenges outside of me. <laughs> I'm not going to take ownership of all of that. They have issues too. Um, and to the point where our morning show fell apart by July. By July, it was completely gone. It was completely dead. And uh, I decided to quit. Mike, we and I, he and I got married. We were going to become truck drivers over the road. We gave away like everything we owned. And uh, these are the glorious things that people do when they're alcoholics. And of course, we get out there to Utah and <laughs> I failed the drug test. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> And uh, so we, we can't be over-the-road truck drivers now. Oh, what are we going to do? Uh, only one thing left to do. I got to move into my mom's basement. And uh, yeah, I got a part-time job in some unsavory places. And yeah, <laughs> maybe someday I'll tell you about that. If you ever want to listen to those stories... You should check out my comedy podcast, which is called Donna Shannon's Coyote Tales. Then you're going to get all the rest of the juicy details. But here, I just want you to understand one thing. It's possible to literally fail ultimately at your dreams and have it turn around and send you in the right direction where you were supposed to be all along. Uh, I actually got sober on October 2nd, 1999. It was another failed suicide attempt. And it just happened to be the moment that I needed to change everything. And um, professionally speaking, I still didn't figure out what the hell I was doing for another year. It took that long to kind of clear out my head, take care of my priorities, get involved in some self-help, you know, 12-step kind of programs to get a psychiatrist, to get group therapy, to get on medication and everything else that I needed to make it <laughs> turn me into a human being and not, you know, like human garbage. Uh, and during that time, I started working temp jobs. By the way, temp jobs are a wonderful way to keep making a living and experiment with all different kinds of environments. You get to check out all kinds of different companies, different jobs, um, you prove yourself, earn a steady paycheck. I highly recommend that. If you're in one of those cruxes in your own life and you're not sure what to do, temporary jobs are a wonderful, wonderful way to explore the world of work. And uh, what I discovered is my passion was actually working in the business office. That's what I enjoyed the most out of being at the radio stations. It was awesome to be surrounded by the creative people and an environment that I had studied and I could feel connected to. And in particular, the part that I loved the most was the recruitment aspects of things. So since I was working the temp jobs, I had the freedom and the time to wait and experiment and look for the next right job to come along. And as it turns out, I got a job as um, the HR recruiter slash accountant at Rocky Mountain PBS. So that's a television station, it's Channel 6 here in Denver. They actually have a group of other stations with them. So yes, PBS, I went from Metallica to Elmo. 
Yeah, an interesting journey, I know. Um, what was really great is this was like right around the 2000s and they needed to implement modern recruitment strategies because we were like literally having people fax their resumes to us or mail them or email them to us. They didn't have an active database. They were like, we're not even sure if we can use monster.com because we've got rules. We need rules that we have to comply with the FCC for broadcasting. We have to meet the EEOC requirements, of course. Uh, we have to meet the ones for federal grants because... We were a PBS station. We had a lot of federal grants for our productions because, you know, we're a learning environment. So I researched it and it's like, yep, we can put into play all of these rules, fair hiring practices. And here's the thing. Those are all the foundations and bedrock of most recruiting practices these days. The computerized screening, the keyword matching, uh, all the rest of those things that you see and I teach throughout all my books and all of my other classes. Of course, our tools have all updated and we can use better things these days, but those concepts are still the same. You got to get through the computers before a human's going to read it. HR is going to put, you know, specific instructions in those job postings to see if you follow the instructions or not. Because big tip, if you don't follow in the instructions, you're going to get cut. So I really revolutionized their whole recruitment process to make it more fair, compliant, and to deal with a higher volume of candidates. But here's the other thing that I started to realize. Unfortunately, because of the way the fair hiring practices worked, it meant that qualified applicants were getting cut just because they didn't understand how the process worked. And I'm like, well, this is just stabbing me in the heart. I hate to do this, but I got rules is rules and I got to follow the rules, especially because I created the rules. So to combat this whole thing that I had turned into, I like I say, I turned from the dark side, so to speak, and I started teaching job searching classes. And my first focus was all about how do you survive the guard dogs like me? And that was in 2004. That's when I started teaching these job searching classes. And everything continued to evolve from there. And just the part I love the absolute most makes me feel like I am on my life's purpose and my life's journey is in those early classes, I would teach something like, for example, any time that they're asking for specific things in the job posting or a specific way to apply, if you don't do that, uh, you're going to get cut. So if it says email your resume and cover letter to ABC at whatever a email address and you don't send a cover letter, you just got cut. You didn't get that job. And it only and they don't even look at your credentials at that point because you didn't follow the clear written instructions. And I would see people sitting in my classes, people who had been looking for jobs for months, and sometimes up to a year. And they would like literally get this look on their face of like, whoa, I can't believe that was the issue all along. And I'm like, yeah, that's the issue all along. And you know what? 
Your failings in your job search, it has nothing to do with your qualifications. It has nothing to do with your age or your degree or your lack of degree. Most of the times, the biggest barriers in people's job search is not doing things correctly. And once you correct that, put in those proper strategies, learn how to deal with HR, and then go above and beyond and like actually track down the hiring managers and get in front of their faces, the difference is amazing. And for these job seekers in just like even a three-hour workshop, to have things turn around for them like that and to it, it wasn't just the job search. It was their feelings of themselves. That whole realization that they don't have to feel like crap about themselves. Because you know what? They are not bad people. They are not, you know, unqualified in their jobs. It all had to do with strategies. And strategies can be changed. And I absolutely adored that whole part of getting to change people's lives in an active way. So I continued to teach my classes for quite some time and I was generating tons of materials for these courses. So in 2009, I was like literally on another precipice. It's like, what the heck am I gonna do? It was either take all this material, sit down, go all in and write a book or drop this whole nonsense, uh, go back to college, get my HR degree, get my HR certification, start moving into HR management and things like this. And I had to really do that big soul search life thing again. And it was, what brings me joy? What is it that is my purpose? And it was that look of wonder and enlightenment on my student's face. And I go, how could I ever walk away from this? I'm in, I'm all in, I'm writing the book, I'm going for it and everything else. So that's when I wrote the first version of my book to get a job without going crazy. It's now in its third edition and everything I've done has grown since then. I did, uh, I was working with a biodiesel company at the time, so I wasn't in broadcast anymore. And I just took that job back to part-time and then I started to do my own company part-time. And then, like I said earlier, in 2011 is when I fully stepped off the corporate cliff and I've been doing this company full time ever since. So why do I tell you all of this stuff? Well, I want you to understand where I'm coming from. And I also want you to take some time to think about what is it that's your passion? What is it that you want to do more than anything. And if you aren't sure, think back into what you've done in your career in the past, where there's certain things from certain jobs that you're like, oh my God, I totally love this. I would do this even if you, you don't even have to pay me. I'll just do it. <laughs> By the way, I end up doing things I love all the time and forget to get paid. So... <laughs> If you're doing that, don't feel bad. We're going to find ways to make the money in there afterwards. But if you got the passion, first and foremost, that's a great way to go, right? So thinking about this, what do you really love? If you don't love it, what do you like to do? And I'm not talking about, oh, I like sales. It's like if you're into sales, lean into it. 
But what is it about sales that you like? Is it meeting new people? Is it making actual connections? Is it the hunt of the sale? Is it prospecting? Is it contract negotiations? Whatever the case may be, what is it in your job that brings you joy and purpose? And then the other thing, what do you hate? Like, totally, what is it in your jobs that make you go, ugh, I would give anything to never, ever have to do this again. And like, literally, write this up in some columns. In my book, I have an exercise that I call the four L's. So the columns are, you love it, you like it, you live with it, or you loathe it. Now we're adults, we know we're always going to have to do some things we don't like, and hopefully not too many of those things that we loathe or hate. And professionally, we want to be moving into those things that we love and like more. I still love audio production. I still love talking on the microphone. You can't get me to shut up, as you probably are starting to learn. But that's what's awesome about my job today, is I can weave elements of being on the radio and do podcasts just like this. I also take those creative ventures and I do stand-up comedy and I have a comedy podcast because I love connecting with an audience, making them laugh and sharing some of these ridiculous stories. That's what it's all about. And for years as a speaker and somebody who's taught, you know, workshops, I've always interjected humor into everything that I teach because people are going to remember it better. You don't want to listen to some boring coach who's just like, well, you know, we just got to figure out what you've got on your Myers-Briggs. And once we know your Myers-Briggs score, we'll be able to perfect, you know, figure out the perfect job for you. Okay, I am never going to tell you to do that. <laughs> just so you know, that is definitely not the kind of career coach I am. But some self-reflection is important. So, what is your dream? What really matters to you? And what is holding you back? I want to share one last story with you about another venture that I dived into. It wasn't successful, but it taught me something extremely critical. And I think it can help you out. I also enjoy horror and sci-fi quite a bit. And in particular, I love the Hellraiser series. I know, it's so delightfully cheesy. And uh, yeah, all the rest of that. We won't go into the deep, dark depths of my psyche any deeper than we already have today. But I, I actually wrote a screenplay. Yes, I did. Uh, I even studied, I was doing classes on how do you write screenplays. I knew all the technical proficiencies for it. I had books, I was studying up on it. I actually read screenplays for some of my favorite movies just to see how they play out because they're not written like a book or a normal story or things like that. And I do have a couple of published uh, short stories out there too in the horror genre. So my biggest hang up though was I... I'm a lazy writer and I'm a lazy writer because in high school I was a good writer and it was possible for me to crank out papers and stories and fiction just like, like that. 
you know, I can just crank it out and have it be better than most. Unfortunately, that's a case of the good is definitely the enemy of the great. Because I was good and fast and naturally proficient, I didn't have to stretch myself very much. So I was used to the first draft being the final draft. By the way, that is a horrible way to write because it's seated in arrogance. And for me, at least it is for me, I'll take ownership of that because I'm an arrogant person overall. And so I was so used to things being perfect. And I knew how some of the scenes played out in the movie that I wanted to. I could see them in my head, but I would get about 10 pages in and then I would freeze because it had to be perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, I didn't know where I was going. And I'm like, so I would just get caught up in this analysis paralysis. The story is trapped in my mind. There's these beautiful scenes that I have in store, but I can't figure out how to get there. And then I had a dawning enlightenment moment. And at the top of the paper, because I was writing everything longhand, because that's how I think, I wrote in gigantic, all capital words, all things can change. Just that simple. All things can change. And what it did is it gave me the freedom to explore the story any way I wanted. And I could have some scenes in there that were totally shit. It didn't matter because it was necessary to get things flowing again. Because you know what? I'm going to come back later and I'm going to find the golden nuggets that were, you know, in that stuff that was just brain dumped onto a page, rough draft, and the freedom of creative expression when I did not have the pressure of having to be perfect the first time around on everything I did. Wow. All things can change. Over the years, I've come to realize that's a great motto for your career as well. We have the freedom to try out different things explore different avenues. And you know what? If something doesn't work out, maybe that dream job you had as a kid, maybe you actually got to do it for a while and then found out it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Or the cost was way too high. Either costs in terms of training or the more horrifying costs, the costs on our family. I've worked with a lot of executives over the years and they're like, my kids are in high school now. I have the last two, three years with them. I don't want to sacrifice this. I don't want to take that next leap on my career. I will do that in five years, but I have lost too much time already. I want to back off my career for two years and enjoy my family before they are gone. And I think that's a beautiful realization. And it's taking advantage of that all things can change, including making time for our family, including reaching, you know, changing up our whole priorities and doing something different and finding that what we love and our purpose may be different 
than what we first thought. So there we go. A lot of depth on that. I hope you enjoyed it. I find it pretty cathartic to talk about these things. And uh, yes, <sighs> sad news. My screenplay has never been picked up. And it's never even been read by very many people. And, you know, it still has some scenes in it that are pretty cool. And it has some scenes that are really, really bad. And it has some scenes that are pretty, pretty cheesy. But you know what? I finished it. And I was able to pull it together. And that was an important accomplishment for me. Because it also made me realize I don't necessarily want to sit there alone pounding away on screenplays and not have the interaction with other people. You know, the best part about writing resumes and helping people with their careers, it's getting to learn their stories and getting to learn what they do. I have found out about some of the most fascinating jobs on the planet because of the, what I do here. And you know what? When you start to get into your own life's purpose, whatever that may be, you're going to find some wonderful stories and meet some fascinating people and it'll just really expand your horizons beyond where you think you could ever have gone before. So there we go. I'm not always known as the great motivational speaker, but this is our reboot. So I invite you to join us with our reboot as we dive into some more stories about this. And yeah, I know I always say I'm going to talk about tattoos. So I always end up talking about tattoos. I'm going to tell you about one of my tattoos that means a lot to me because it's right over my heart. So one of the first tattoos I got was a dragon literally right over my heart. And the whole thought process with that was if I'm going to follow my heart in my life, I'm going to need a protector to make sure I don't get hurt too badly. Oh, that's kind of sweet. Well, the problem was the art is really bad. <laughs> it's really, really bad. So uh, just last year in 2020, my pandemic tattoo is I got a cover up of it done. And now instead of this weird blobby dragon that after 30 years had faded, and nobody even knew what the hell it was anymore. I've got this totally badass Japanese dragon coming all it's a full shoulder cap and it's just like busting through from its smoke with all the claws and the teeth and the raw you know just like an awesome dragon should be and it's amazing by the way our logo with that green raw dragon that's the one that's my new dragon over my heart and you know what it's not a protector anymore it is my courage to go ahead and be myself. And this tattoo is the one that's actually the most visible one that I've ever done because it extends all the way over to the center of my chest. And like a lot of Gen Xers, when we got our tattoos done early on, we were pretty conscious. It's like, yes, we're rebellious and tribal tattoos and whatnot. Most of the time we were still putting them in spots that could be easily covered up by work clothes if we needed to go work in an office. But now this thing, it's like if I wear anything that's going to expose like even the top part of my chest, you can start to see the tattoo. For me, as a speaker, that was a massive affirmation of, you know what? I'm not going to hide who I am anymore. 
I'm going to totally own this and have it be out there because you know what? I'm comfortable with who I am and what I do these days. And here's the thing that's the most beautiful part about this tattoo, which wasn't planned at all, but I think it's one of the things that I love the most, is on the very background, there's like a whole bunch of clouds and stuff like this. You can kind of even see through the dragon's mouth. And if you look real closely and you know what you're looking at, you can actually see a little tiny bit of the old dragon, the original one. And at first I was upset. It was like, oh, duh, he didn't cover up that part. It, but you know what? To the casual observer, it just looks like clouds. But to me, what I've come to realize, the meaning is, everything that I was before still feeds in to who I am today. It's just been evolved. All right, so there you go. Hopefully you can enjoy some of our new podcasts that we're going to be doing this year. 2022 is just going to be all kinds of exciting and uh, new stuff. And we're going to have some real, real conversations like this. I'll share part of who I am. Hopefully get into the comments, share parts of who you are, and we'll start building a real community about these crazy tattooed freaks in business suits that we all are. Thanks for listening to Tattooed Freaks in Business Suits, produced by the Personal Touch Career Services. Our host is Donna Shannon. All music has been ethically sourced and licensed from SoundDogs.com and EpidemicSound.com. Support the arts. We certainly do. Join us next time as we continue to explore the evolving world of work and leadership in the United States. If you are interested in being a guest or if you would like to receive a complimentary career evaluation, please visit the contact page at personaltouchcareerservices.com. Once again, that's personaltouchcareerservices.com. Or you can just Google it. <laughs>